0: Verse number one, then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with undefiled, that is with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they use hands. I mean, wait a second, do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. So let me just stop right there. This is not about clean freaks, okay? This is not just about people who obsess over hand sanitizer and and, and overly consumed with washing themselves. This is about a ceremonial religious formality of washing your hands before you eat. Verse 4, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, that is Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands he answered and said to them well did isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me and in vain they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. The washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man has a father or mother, whatever profit might be received from me is Core bond, that is a gift to God. Isn't that interesting? Let me just stop there and just point something out to you. This is a very interesting statement. He says, the Bible says, and then he says this, but you say. Hey, that's a problem. The Bible says this, but you say this. Look, hey, the Bible is the exclamation point, folks. It's not, it's not the comma, the question mark, the dot dot dot. When the Bible says it. That's it. And here what we find is the Pharisees had all these traditions. And yet when it came right down to the actual word of God, they had found a way conveniently to get around it. I'm going to explain that in just a minute. But I I need to stop right here because I I need to preach. Okay, So let me stop right there and I'm going to pray and then we're going to get into this. Okay, Lord, I pray that you will use this message as we study the word of God. As we open our hearts and as we learn what the Bible says, help us to not be Pharisees. And we pray that you will guide us and show us how, in Jesus' name, amen. The label of the message this morning is, take a look inside. Take a look inside. In San Diego, California, a 21-year-old man by the name of Jesus Garcia Lopez was a bank teller at a national branch bank inside the city of San Diego. He had been working there for about 18 months. Then one morning, a man slipped him a note underneath of his teller glass, and the note said simply these words, Give me all the money in both top and bottom drawer or someone in the lobby dies. Give me 30 minutes before alerting anyone or I'll be back and shoot people right away. And then Garcia Lopez went on to hand the man $23,070 in cash and the man got away. Well this began about an 18 month investigation into what appeared to be a bank robbery getaway. It did not take investigators long to make a connection through another crime with Jose, uh, Jesus Garcia Lopez and a potential suspect to other bank robberies only to find out in putting the two together that they were roommates. It was an inside job. Later on, Garcia Lopez was arrested and thrown into prison for accessory to bank robbery and spent a number of years in prison along with his roommate. The bank robbery was a classic inside job. In our text, in Mark chapter number 7, Jesus is going to point out a far more dangerous inside job than a bank robbery. And that inside job is the source of every sin and every crime that has ever been committed by anyone, anywhere. The problem with the Pharisees is really simple is the problem of appearing to be religious by having ceremony and external cleansings, but missing fundamentally the most important part. And that is, what God is doing in your heart is far more important than what you appear to be before other people. Or, as I've said before, you can have the outside right without the inside. But when God gets a hold of your heart on the inside, he is going to begin to transform your life from inside out. The scary thing about religion is that religion can become very external. Religion can become very showy. Religion can become very uh, formalistic and following a bunch of rules and expectations that religious people put on you. But Jesus is going to point out in this passage that the Pharisees, although they looked and appeared to be religious, they were not transformed by the gospel of Christ. And so he's going to share with us the danger of external religion. And through this passage from verses 1 to 23, we're going to see three warnings that God gives us in this passage as it relates to Pharisees. And the first one I want you to see is in verses 1 through 5. The first warning that God gives us about avoiding the sins of the Pharisees is that we must beware of becoming a critic of others. Beware of becoming a critic of others. Man, you want to know what's interesting about religious people sometimes? They always have things in a tightly, neat, packaged box, and they always seem to have an answer about everything, and they always seem to have an opinion about everybody. I was listening to somebody uh, one time talk about a Christian music artist, of all things, and I just... I remember setting the conversation going, I just can't believe I just heard that. They were, they were actually describing and talking about why they didn't appreciate this person because of the way they sang and the way they held a microphone. And I just stopped to myself and thought to myself, where is the end of all of this? The only people that like Pharisees are Pharisees. And Pharisees have an opinion about everybody and everything in the world and they've always got the right answer about everything and everybody that's not just like them is always wrong. And that's what you find in verses one through five. By the way, I want to spend more time in my life critiquing myself than critiquing others. And I want to be far, come on, I want to be far harder on Brian than I am on somebody else in the body of Christ. Can somebody give me a witness to that this morning? I mean, if we were doing this right, If we had this right, don't you think that we'd be more introspective and asking God to do something in our lives rather than becoming the judge and jury and executioner of all things spiritual with everybody else in the world? But yeah, that's not what Pharisees do. What do Pharisees do? Well, first of all, Pharisees show up and they miss a whole lot in their lives. I mean, look what it says in verse 1. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes, watch this, came together to him having come from Jerusalem. Now remember, where is Jesus at this time? He is in Galilee. Galilee is northern Israel. Jerusalem is in Judah, Judea, southern Israel. And why did they come? Why did these Pharisees who lived in Jerusalem make the track all the way up north... And by the way, in order to avoid Samaria, they crossed the Jordan River on the east, went all the way out into a completely out-of-the-way track to end up in Galilee. Why did they go? Well, back at the end of chapter number 6, it says, when they crossed over, verse 53, they came to the land of the Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they, they came out of the boat, immediately people recognized him. They ran through the whole surrounding region and began to carry about on beds those that were sick to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or countries, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. Watch this. And as many as touched him were made whole. What did they miss? They missed what God was doing, folks. Is this sad and tragic or what? They came to Jerusalem, or excuse me, to, 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 uh, uh, to Galilee because they had heard of the fame of Jesus spreading. Now, watch this. And as soon as they get there, They're not thinking about all the dead people that are now alive and the sick people that are now whole and the lame people that are now walking and the blind people that are now seeing. Oh, no, no. They're not thinking about that. Oh, they're all caught up over here with the disciples not doing a ceremonial cleansing when they go to eat their packed lunch along the journey with Jesus. How sad. It's like people that will go to John 2 and try to, uh, talk about Jesus turning water into wine. I, I've heard all the arguments. You just look, if you want to sit down sometime and discuss with me what you think I think Jesus created and what you think I think about this or that, we can do that for sure. But let me be one uh, be real clear about what John 2 is not about. John 2 is not about wine, it's about Jesus, folks. And you can spend your life trying to nitty-grit and pick and decide and try to explain away this or that or whatever you want to do. But John 20, verse 31 tells us that the miracles were to show us that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, you might have life through his name. And you might have an opinion on this or that. But let me tell you, life is more about Jesus than it is about your nitpicking of everybody about every little thing that you think is spiritual or not spiritual. (laughs) So Jesus... Uh, ...shows what they missed, and Jesus shows what they saw. Verse 2. Now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with, defi- uh, with defile, ...that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. What did they see? They saw what they were looking for. What they were looking for was fault. They didn't come to Jesus looking for his miracles... ...looking for the answers, looking for the power that he has... ...looking for the forgiveness that he offered. No. They came looking for fault. May I say this to you? If you look to find fault in other people's lives, you will find it every time. This was the method of the Pharisees. This was not the only thing they were critical about. I mean, Probably most predominantly the thing that they were critical about was the use or the misuse, in their opinion, of the Sabbath. God had made it clear that they were not to work on the Sabbath. They were to provide rest and worship to their body and spirit on the Sabbath... But Jesus had an answer for them every time they came criticizing what they did on the Sabbath. I think that there's two occasions in particular that stick out to me. In Matthew chapter number 12, verses 1 through 14, the disciples were walking through a field and all they did was reach out their hand and grab a head of grain and take a bite of it because they were hungry on the Sabbath day. Let me ask you a question Do you think people were supposed to eat on the Sabbath day? Of course they were. But but what were these disciples, or what were these Pharisees saying? What were they criticizing? Oh, look at you, out in a field, harvesting a crop on the Lord's day. And then on one occasion, of all things, Jesus actually heals a lame man on the Sabbath day. And they start criticizing Jesus for helping the guy on the Sabbath day. And then Jesus makes a great statement. Man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is was made for men. You have taken your rule book and you have imposed it upon everybody else to tell them what they can and cannot do. But here's the bottom line. Jesus did not put the Sabbath in the word of God to put a shackle on you. He put the Sabbath in the word of God to put a release upon you so that you could rest and learn how to trust God. Jesus says, you guys are crazy. The Pharisees were the Sabbath police. The Pharisees were the hand-washing police. Folks, listen, I've said it before, but our job is not to be the police, the judge, the jury of everyone else's life. The fact is, I have enough trouble trying to make sure that my relationship with God, my relationship with my family, and my relationship with others is right. And frankly, I don't have time to try to worry about yours. And you shouldn't have time trying to worry about Mine. Quit being a critic. What's wrong with us? Just think about conversations you've had this week. Just think about maybe a time where you found fitting to criticize or assassinate someone else for what they did or didn't do that you thought they should or shouldn't have done. It's amazing how hard we can be on people. Somebody say, man, God help us today. What's wrong with us? I think of Tamar and Judah. This this is one of the most bizarre stories in the whole Bible. Tamar and Judah. Judah, by the way, this is in Genesis, I believe, 38. Genesis 37 through 50 is all about Joseph. There's one chapter in 37 through 50 that's about Judah. It's almost like, meanwhile, back at the ranch, everybody's crazy. Joseph loves God. Meanwhile, over here, Judah's a psycho. Look what he did. Look what he did. God blessed. Joseph wouldn't even sleep with Potiphar's life. And look what look what he did. Right? So Judah, what's Judah do? Well, Judah has wicked sons. Now, you might give him the benefit of the doubt and say, well, those boys just made their own choices. But they married a girl named Tamar. The first one, the Bible just simply says he was wicked and God killed him. That's what it says. The second one Decided he was not going to perform the duty of taking care of Tamar. Rather, just enjoyed the physical pleasures with Tamar. It's crazy. God killed him. Then there was a third son that was too young to get married. So Judah says to Tamar, I want you to go back home. And go back to your mom and dad's house. And when Shayla is old enough, I'll call you back and we'll get married. Well, as the story goes, Shayla has grown up. And by the way, when the Bible just sometimes says it came to pass, this is years this poor woman has waited for years for this man to do the right thing. She realizes he's not going to do it. So what does she do? Well, she decides to go where he always goes and hangs out and parties with his buddies. And she takes off, the Bible says, her morning garments and goes out in a garment of a prostitute. This is true. She goes out and dresses up like a prostitute and solicits her Father-in-law, Judah, one of the twelve. And what does Judah do? And he takes her up on it. Why did she even go out and do that? She knew he would. So Judah goes in and sleeps with her. He doesn't have any money on him. So he just gives her a, an exchange, gives her, I believe it was a staff and a, a signet ring to kind of hold until I go get you the payment from my flock back. And This is crazy. This is what happened. Well, Tamar's nowhere to be found. So a few months later when she's showing the signs of her pregnancy, the word gets back to Judah that your daughter-in-law has played the harlot and she has gone out and gotten pregnant out of wedlock. What are you going to do about that? And you know what he does about that? He calls for her. And this is, listen, this is actually in the Bible. This is what he says, bring her to me and burn her. So she comes back and she says, I'll tell you who I got pregnant by. Whoever's rod this was and whoever's ring this was. What arrogance, what crazy talk. Bring her here and burn her. But how many times do we burn people on social media, and burn people in a private conversation, and burn people, becoming professional spectators, S P E C K taters, spectators, like the ones in Matthew chapter seven, where Jesus says, "Quit judging everybody else. You've got a, you've got a telephone pole sticking out of your face, and you're looking at somebody else that's got a splinter in their eye. Why don't you take care of the telephone pole, stick it out of your face before you?" Criticize somebody that's got a speck in their eye. Don't be a critic. That's bad. (laughs) Number two. Number two. What's the second warning we find here? Don't be a critic of others, of course. Number two. Do not elevate tradition over scripture. Do not elevate tradition over scripture. Verse six. He said unto them, well did Isaiah uh, prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. He starts this statement about their traditions and commandments by making this statement. They were hypocrites. What is a hypocrite? Well, what it means is while they were criticizing other people for their failure to follow traditions... They themselves were, in fact, not keeping God's word. That's the definition of a hypocrite appearing to be something that you're not. Guys, do you know how the word hypocrite developed? It's, it's an interesting word. The word originally was given as a statement of something that someone wore in a play a mask. And when you came out on the stage and you were playing a particular role, you would put a mask on to play that role. Well, it was an innocent word at the beginning, but what happened is the word became a negative word. It began to describe people whose lives were like living on the big screen. They had a mask for church. They had a mask for synagogue. They had a mask for work. They had a mask. For their kids, they had a mask around their wife, and every little place they went was like a scene in a drama. Your life was never intended to be a playwright. Your life is not intended to be an acting show. Your life was never intended for Broadway. Your life is intended to be authentic and real. And Jesus points out to them that while you seem to be religious, the fact of the matter is you are not I'm uh, next week at the conference starting on Thursday. Uh, I, one of my really good friends is coming, Pastor Brent Armstrong. He used to be my pastor in uh, South Carolina years ago, and he's coming with a couple of folks from his church, and you'll get to meet him this week. And he, <clears throat> one time, gave me, gifted me, a Rolex. In fact, I'll never forget it. We were, we were, we were in chapel in California at a Bible college chapel. And he used it as an illustration. And and, and at the end of the illustration, kind of the climax of the illustration is he actually turned around and just tossed it to me. Right on the platform. And boy, I grabbed it in my hand and I looked and I thought, wow, that's really cool. The only problem was the sermon that he was illustrating was on hypocrisy. And the Rolex was purchased in China intentionally as a fake Just to use as an illustration for the sermon. So while he gifted me a Rolex, it was in fact a fake Rolex. And I knew it when he gave it to me. It was the point of the story. It looked like a Rolex, it worked like a Rolex, it even had similar weighting as a Rolex. If I were to hold that Rolex up against one in a store to the naked eye, you would not know the difference. Just like the average Christian that walks in church, and you look down the row, and you look all around the auditorium, everybody relatively looks the same, but it is for some people a nomination for a Grammy Award of Best Actor. Jesus says, you guys are hypocrites. Secondly, he says, your mistake is this, that you have actually taken God's word and you have laid it aside while you have elevated the traditions of men. Now, let me explain this really quickly. What was the commandment of God? Answer, the Bible. He says, Moses said this. That's in the Bible. The traditions of men were what we would call external applications of biblical principles. Um, In fact, formally in Israel, they had a collected group of them. They were called various things throughout time. They became the Talmud is what it was called. It was was an actual book. It would be like going down to the bookstore and buying a book on marriage. Maybe it was based on biblical principles, but maybe it gave you some pointers that, that weren't necessarily biblical or right or wrong. They just were based on truth. Here's the problem. The book about marriage... Became bigger than what the Bible said about marriage. Are you following me? The book about marriage. The book about money. The book about dress. The book about music. The book about Bible translations. The book about whatever. Became more important to these people than the Bible itself. And these became big deals. I mean, they lived by these so much so that they found convenient ways to elevate the traditions of men even above the very word of God. And he gives us an actual example here in the Bible about what they did. So it's kind of weird. It sounds weird to us. But look what he says in verse number number 8. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Here it is. For Moses said... This is what the Bible says. You are to honor your father and your mother. He who curses his father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father and mother, whatever profit you may have been received from me is korban. Now let me stop and explain what's going on here. Basically what's happening here is that one of the ways in which Israel were to take care of or honor their aging parents was to meet their financial needs when they got older. You want to know one of the saddest industries in the whole United States of America is the nursing home industry? Where lonely people who have nobody to care for them and love for them get sucked away and not visited for years and years and years. I did not say the use of a nursing home was wrong. Please do not misquote me. I said one of the saddest things you see sometimes is when that happens. These men were responsible to take care of their parents in their aging years. Are y'all following me so far? That's what he said. But then, here's what you say. I know I'm supposed to take care of my mom and dad with the money that I have, but if I designate some of my income... Or some of my housing as korban—that was an actual word to the Hebrews. It literally means gift, sacrifice to God. It means you could take anything. They had decided that you could take anything that you owned and designate it over here. That this is God's. Therefore, I cannot use that to take care of my parents. Something God's already told me to do because I decided to use it for God. Hello, everybody. No, the way you use it for God is by doing with it what God said to do with it. And there, they actually ignored God's word through their traditions. I love what William Barclay said about this. Listen very carefully because this is where rubber meets the road. Jesus was attacking a system which put rules and regulations before the claim of human need. What is the first and greatest commandment in the Bible? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. What's the second one? Love your what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And what was going on in this passage? There was a human need. Your parents need to be taken care of. And that is what the law was intended to do. Make us love God. Make us love one another. And what did they do? They ignored loving your neighbor as yourself in order to fulfill a religious tradition of men. This is the mistake of our day. How do people become critical? When you love you more than you love somebody else. When do people not take care of the God-given obligations they have? When you love you more than you love your neighbor as yourself. Folks, we've got to keep traditions in their proper place. Do you have traditions? I'm sure you do. Does your family have rules and regulations and expectations? I'm sure you do. Do you have opinions about how churches should go and how they shouldn't go? I'm sure that you do. What should we do with our traditions and the commandments of God? Here's the answer. Number one, never put a tradition on the same level as the Bible. Let's stop acting like this is in the Bible if it's not. If it's not in the Bible, you have the right to an opinion. Everybody can have an opinion. But don't bring it to public Don't bring it to church And don't make it a divisive issue ever What do you do with traditions? Lots of people have them They should be personal They should never become a source of conflict With believers uh, inside or outside the church Did you ever notice that in 2020 I never made a political statement? You know what I'm going to do in 2024? Looking very carefully I'm not going to make a political statement and there are some of you that are Trumpers, so hardcore, oh my word. If you are, listen to me very carefully. Keep it to yourself. Keep it out of the church. It's not a church matter. And what are you going to do? You say, "You say, I don't care, I don't care what anybody likes, I don't care. Okay, what are you going to do? Here's the question. What are you going to do with somebody who's come to this church for the first or second time, they wouldn't know Jesus if he smacked them upside the head with a dumbbell. And your message is Trump rather than Jesus. What did you do? You immediately alienated them. And you made them feel like you can't even be a Christian if you're not a Republican. I got news for you, friend. Being a Christian has nothing to do with Donald Trump or being a Republican. Being a Christian has everything to do with Jesus. You, do I have an opinion? Yes. Do you want me to tell you my opinion? You probably do. Am I going to? Probably not. <laughs> and that's just one example of how you can take something and put it above. How about how about right what's right in front of us, folks? How many do you know how many churches have been destroyed over the coronavirus? How many opinionated Christians, because of their, their belief in conspiracy theories, their belief in mask or not mask? Listen to me very carefully. I will never stand up here and proclaim what should or should not be. You do what you're supposed. I tell you what we all should do. what not we just do? Won't we just be smart? If you're sick, stay home. For crying out loud. Quit spreading it around to everybody else, okay? Am I going to ever cancel church again? Absolutely not. Am I going to mandate this or that? Absolutely not. Am I going to get into the ring and fight with somebody over what they think about this or that? Absolutely not. I said it on day one. We are not going to be a COVID-focused church. We're going to be a Jesus-focused church. And that's just a few examples how we can actually start fights, start wars on social media about our opinions about this or that, and the whole time. We're ignoring the great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Beware of elevating your tradition or your opinion over scripture. And finally, beware of missing the heart of the problem. Beware of missing the heart of the problem. He goes on and says in verse 14, now, he he is... He has now scolded the Pharisees. And now, in verse 14, he's going to change his direction of who he's talking to. Look at verse 14. When he called the multitude to himself, he said, hear me, everyone, and understand. Watch this. There is nothing that enters into a man from outside which can defile him. But the things that come out of a man, those are the things that defile a man. Watch it. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So now, the Pharisees have left mad. Now Jesus turns to the crowd and says this. Guys, 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 guys. (laughs) If you eat food with non-ceremonial cleansed hands, the food that goes into you is not going to defile you. He says it's what's already in you that defiles you. If you have ears to hear, let him hear. Now look at the next verse. Look at verse number 17. When he entered into a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. What were you talking about out there? What did you mean by uh, what goes out and into a man? And now look what Jesus says. Okay, are you also without understanding, verse 18? Do you not perceive that whatever enters from a man outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart but his stomach. This is so basic. Eating food is not going to defile your heart because it doesn't even go to your heart. Does anybody need any further biological explanation of what Jesus is talking about here? You eat food and you're going to eliminate what you don't need. That's what he says. So quit acting like eating a certain food or not eating a certain food or washing your hands or not washing your hands. Has anything to do with your heart because it doesn't. So, is everybody okay so far? Can I get at least an amen? Y'all are kind of looking at me funny. That's what it says. Verse 19, verse 20, what comes out of a man, that's what defiles a man. Now watch, he's going to explain this, watch this. Here's what comes out of a man, a man. Evil thoughts, adultery, fornication, murder, theft, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. I'm not going to take all the time today to explain each one of those. It should be obvious what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is... Out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. You murder because you have hatred in your heart. You lie because you're deceitful in your heart. That's what he's saying. What is the point of what Jesus is making? While the Pharisees are over here making a big deal about the outside, here's what I've come to do. I've come to change the heart of man. This is what the new covenant was all about. The Old Testament, they got covenants. They got Mosaic covenants. They got Abrahamic covenants. They got Davidic covenants. And what did they do over and over and over again? They broke them over and over. And God gave a new covenant always, always, always. And with every covenant came a promise of the Messiah that would come. And finally, when they were in Babylonian captivity, Jeremiah finally makes it clear to everybody what he's been talking about this whole time. I'm going to bring a new covenant. Not one written in the stones, but one written in the fleshly heart. I'm going to forgive your sins, and I'm going to change your life. That's the new covenant. That's what Jesus said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23. This is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it. And remember to me, what is the new covenant? It's in the blood of Jesus, friend. What is the new covenant? It's in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. That's why Hebrews said, and for this reason, he, Jesus, is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions of the under the first covenant. That those who may, uh, uh, who, uh, who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. What is Jesus saying? He's actually saying this. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. How many of you are glad today that there is such a thing as a new covenant? Meaning that... Your law-breaking, which is endless, has one and only remedy. That somebody would clean up your mess for you. Because you done messed it up. There's only one person that can clean up your mess because, hey, because there's only one thing that can clean up the mess. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Friend, there's only one thing That cleanses the mess of sin. And it is the blood of Jesus Christ. Why is he the mediator of the new covenant? Because he died and shed his blood. And the shedding of blood is the only way of forgiveness. What are we talking about here? We're talking about you don't need religion. You need Jesus. My very first Sunday at Harvest Baptist Church here. I was greeted by... Shortly after walking in the auditorium by a guy named Josh, and I knew Josh, Josh took one or two classes from me in seminary out in California, and I was really excited to see him. Quite quite honestly, I was so uncertain about so many things in those first early days of the church, to see a familiar face was exciting, and and to learn that Josh actually lived here in Jacksonville and was an owner-operator, or was was trained to be an owner-operator at Chick-fil-A, and uh, so Josh started coming to our church. I found out shortly after Josh started coming to our church that Josh's heart was only operating at 20%. He had heart failure. And he was only 24. It was a really tough situation. And I remember a couple times early on in that first, like at first semester, I'm a, I was a college teacher, semester, first uh, fall of the year that um, Josh was hospitalized. Aaron, I think you were with me. Uh, going down to Baptist South, going up to the third or fourth floor, walking down the hallway, and going to Josh's room. He was curled up in a fetal position. He looked a strange color of light green and tan mixed together. And I I just thought, man, he's going to die. He's going to die. And they expedited his heart transplant at Mayo Clinic. And uh, just about a month later, he got the call that a heart came in. I'll never forget, man, I rushed down to Mayo and Ran into that hospital and nurses were running around and they were getting the uh, anesthesia ready and the doctor was coming in. They were doing all these checks. It was just this bizarre. This thing happens fast. And we prayed together, prayed with the doctors. And a few hours later, Josh had a new heart. Seven days later, he walked in to the auditorium on a Wednesday night on his own feet. It was amazing. He was a brand new guy. He had no more heart failure. Josh struggled with a lot of things. I come to find out some of those things in all the times that I've spent with him. His new heart gave him, as you probably heard before, kind of a new lease on life. And he got very serious about his relationship with God afterwards. So much so that he decided to check himself into a counseling place to get some help in some areas that he had struggled with his whole life. And while he was checked into that place up in Illinois, one night Josh peacefully went to sleep and never woke up again. I remember getting the call from his dad and we 26, maybe 25, I think. The same day I heard that Josh died, I received a handwritten letter from him in the mail. I think I think, if my memory serves me right, he wrote the note the night he died. and it showed up at the church. So I sat back and read it. Josh was given a testimony of what God had done in his life. Now never forget what he said in the letter. He said, Pastor, God is so real to me right now. I thought, my goodness, oh no. He was not real when you wrote that letter, but my friend, he's real to you now. When I read that letter, he knew everything there was to know about Jesus. He became fully known and knew and became like him. He knew it all changed. Because not only did Josh have a new physical heart, Josh had a new spiritual heart made clean and perfect by the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son. And friend, what you need is not, I don't know why you came here today. I don't know why anybody comes to church anymore. I really don't. I mean, I I have no idea. I have no concept of what brought you here. But I can tell you this, oftentimes people come because they're looking for something. What you need is not to try to dress it up and make yourself look better and be a better you and have a new and improved whatever. That's not what we need right now. What you need is you need Jesus Christ. You need him as your savior. You need a brand new heart. And for some of you that grew up in more of a conservative, strong background, you need to have, you, you seriously, you need to have your heart checked. Because if you're not careful, you become that critic that's elevated tradition over scripture. And you become that person that nobody ever wants to be around except for you. And let's ask God to help us with this. Aaron, i just have you come and play today. Let's just not, let's not sing. Let's, let's I want to just have Aaron play we're going to bow for prayer right now as we, as we close this service. I want to ask you a couple questions. Number one, is there somebody here today that needs Jesus Christ to change your heart? You do not have the assurance of a personal relationship with God, but you know you need more than religion. You know you need more than just a new routine, a new way of doing things. You need somebody to cleanse and change your heart. Is there anybody like that here today? Preacher, pray for me. I need a new heart. Man, I need God to change my life. Would you just slip your hand up Say, that's me, preacher. I, I, I thank you. God bless you. Amen. I don't need religion, man. I need a relationship with Christ. I want to know for certain that I have that relationship with him, that I've been cleansed and forgiven of my, of my sins. How many of you would say this, preacher? I'll tell you, man, I'm a Christian, but I, this message about the Pharisees challenged me because I find myself there so often. Look into the checklist. Look into the rule book for my validation. And then becoming critical of other people that don't line up just like me. That's easy. I don't want a fake, hypocritical appearance of a religion. I want to be, I want God to have a hold of my heart. And I want to be a follower of Jesus in a real way. How many say God spoke to you today? Would you just lift your hands and say God spoke to me? I don't want to be. Praise the Lord. Hey, would you look this way real quick? Look, I don't ever try to manipulate anything here. That's not me. But I'll tell you one thing I like. I like these steps. These steps mean you can kneel without hurting your knees. Those little sticky things in the floor, they hurt, don't they? You know what's good for you to do? I'll tell you what's good for you. Every once in a while, you just need to come. Just like the song said, come just like you are. Just come to the altar and spend some time in prayer. Ask God to help you with this. And if you see somebody that you want to pray with, why don't you go pray with them? That's to be in the church. Amen? Let's all stand as Aaron plays. If you want to come, just come on. Let's come and pray today. God, help me not to be a Pharisee. Help me not to be a hypocrite. Help me to be a person with a genuine faith. Help me not to be just an appearance of religion, critical and judgmental. I want to invite anybody that would like to, that would be comfortable praying with somebody. I want to invite you to come. There's folks here. You can just pick somebody and have a word of prayer with them. Man, it's okay. We got to be people that are sensitive to the Holy Spirit and is leading to give somebody the encouragement that they need to be there I hope you would, I hope you could and otherwise just take all the time you need man I want I want to be genuine being religious never helped anybody Having a heart for God does.